You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Good morning. And please join me in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. We have, including today, just four sermons left in the book of Revelation, and we will be done. That is an accomplishment, not only for the pastors of our church, but I hope that you feel that as an accomplishment as a congregation together, because the public ministry of the Word of God, which is what preaching is, is a collaboration between pastors and church members, which we are all church members. And so every time we work through, as we typically do, verse by verse through books of the Bible, it is a time for celebration. It's a time for us to be encouraged about our continued love and appreciation and um, nourishment on the Word of God. So this morning we are in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, with just four sermons left, two about doom and two about rejoicing. This morning we are on the first of the dooms, but this is a rejoicing doom because it is about the ultimate doom of our enemy who is the devil, who has been deceiving from the beginning. I read an article about a Turkish man who was unhappy with his stature at five foot two. He felt that his, his height kept him from a lot of opportunities, that it uh, diminished his confidence. And so this man paid $27,000 for doctors to perform a leg lengthening surgery in which they made a number of incisions into the bones of his legs so that they could insert a device. And then once healed, he went home with a remote control. And every day he could click the remote and he could grow by one millimeter per day. Today he is 5'7". He's a little bit like, a little bit like the devil. Because from the beginning, the devil has not been satisfied with his stature. And from the beginning... He has been ever seeking to deceive us into believing that he is taller than he actually is, that he's bigger, that he is more powerful. But in the end, as we see this morning, in the end, all will know his true limits. And that's what we will see from this text in Revelation chapter 20 as we consider the final doom of the devil. I want to notice in this text three truths about this final doom. What will happen? Just to keep the context, remember that we are now what seems to be in a a thousand-year reign or coming to the end of a thousand-year reign of Christ. When Christ returns to the earth and he sets up a kingdom for a thousand years in which he will reign, yes, there will still be unbelievers in the world during those thousand years, those who love and belong to Christ and others will continue to have children and there will be those who come to faith in Christ, those who do not. But in the world, because of Jesus' reign, those who don't believe in him will be as far away from his reign as they possibly can. And during that thousand years, as we've already considered, the devil himself will be bound. He will be imprisoned in an abyss in which his influence is removed. Of course, that's a great reminder to us, isn't it, is that We don't need the devil in order to be tempted. We don't need the devil in order to disbelieve or disobey God. Because at this time, that will be happening in certain places of the world. 
though Jesus is reigning supreme. But at the end of that thousand years, which is where we arrive today in this text, there will first be a sovereign release. Let's look just at verses 7 and 8 to begin. In recent Sundays, we have been noticing some of the passive verbs. Remember how the beast and the false prophet were seized? That's a passive verb. It's not something that they do themselves. It's something that's done to them. God, in his sovereign control, seizes them. In the similar way, he's done the same thing at the beginning of the thousand-year reign. He took hold, another passive verb of the devil, showing God's sovereign control even over him. We're reminded again and again throughout Scripture that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He's never wringing his hands in heaven, worried about what's happening on earth. He has everything in absolute ultimate control and that includes, that includes the devil. In fact, we may say with others who have said this in the past that the devil is God's devil. He is like a dog on a chain. God has him on a chain in perfect control. And we even see that again with yet another passive verb. This morning, the passive verb is released. Notice in verse seven, it says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. Again, he he will not release himself. He won't pick the lock and escape the abyss by himself and his own control, but rather the sovereign God of the universe will release him from his prison. And he will be released for a particular purpose. The purpose, as we read in verse 8, is that he will come out to deceive the nations who are at the four corners of the earth. And then we have these two strange names, Gog and Magog. And this is a reference back to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, this is a reference to the enemies of God throughout the world, of the unbelieving world, all of the unbelieving hearts that remain in opposition to him, unwilling to come to him and receive his mercy and grace or bow before his kingship to belong to him and to know his covenant love and to be a part of his family and his kingdom forever. Satan will be released from his abyss to go into the world to deceive Gog and Magog, the four corners of the earth, the nations that are there, and he will gather them together for the war. This will be an incredible gathering of troops, unlike the world has ever seen. Notice that John says at the end of verse 8 that the number of them in his vision is like the sand of the seashore. Satan will be released from his prison and he will go off into the world to deceive the nations of the world who are left in unbelief so that they will mount together an overconfident assault upon Jesus and his kingdom. The deception will be that they can actually pull off what the devil has been attempting from the beginning, which is the overthrow of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, there's no way to avoid in this text seeing something that is surprising to us. I find so many times in Scripture that as I learn more about who God is, the Word of God gives me glimpses, gives you glimpses into His character and nature and ways, and sometimes they are ways that we did not expect. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Yes, we know that. But even then, there are times when he does things that are simply unpredictable. These are times when doubts of God in our hearts rise. 
And here is one of those times, I believe, because we see God in his sovereign control doing something unexpected. Could you imagine uh, in the future if, if this scenario were to play out that at the end of the thousand years when so many things have been going well and Christ has been so present and, and, and the, the love and enjoyment of his presence has been so high that at the end of the time, the devil who has been in the abyss is unlocked and released. Can you imagine what that would do within your own mind? The kind of unexpected concern that that would raise. What, what, what are you doing? Lord, why are you doing this? But these moments, like many moments in our daily lives, they, they call for a kind of trust that God is ever working by his grace to develop in us. It calls for a kind of implicit trust. Now, that's a key word these days, isn't it? We have heard that word over the last few years, very often in in reference to social issues and troubles of our day, especially when it comes to racism. We've heard about the, the topic of implicit bias. That word implicit used in that way in others is a way of talking about something that that is sort of second nature. It's a kind of uh, idea that there's an unconscious response to life that's happening in an implicit bias. But if we take that same language and idea here and apply it to trust, we find something beautiful and wonderful that God is cultivating in our hearts through all of our trials and troubles, through all of our losses and crosses, God is developing in us a kind of implicit trust a natural response so that when we see God do something unexpected or when life turns out in a way that we did not anticipate, rather than putting God on trial, rather than turning away from him or doubting his goodness and love, we want to be the kinds of people who have an implicit trust of him, a natural, almost unconscious trust of him because we've come to know him so well that there's nothing he could do that could throw us off the the trail of his faithfulness. If we want to put this in kind of ordinary earthly terms, we might think of the concept of muscle memory. We've been talking about that some in our family, in particular with Josiah, who loves to play basketball as I do. And I remember so often growing up, spending hours on a basketball court with coaches and others helping me to grow. One of the things we constantly talked about was muscle memory. We want to do the same thing over and over again with proper form so that it becomes second nature. Take shooting a basketball, for example, having proper form over and over and over, consciously working in the practice gym to practice that same motion in different situations. What's the idea? The idea is that when we finally get into the game, that becomes just routine. It's just a playback of that muscle memory, and then we're able to score as we wouldn't be able to had we not practiced in that way. Well, here's a great picture of what we need in implicit trust is as we have this repeated practice in all different situations of learning to trust God and trusting him over and over again, we want that to become the very natural result of our hearts and minds. This is, in fact, something that we have seen throughout the Bible at work in God's people. In particular, I'm reminded as I think about this of the Psalms or in particular, David The kind of spiritual muscle memory that he talks about in the Psalms is something that I want in my life. 
as one of your pastors, it's something that I want in your life. And as people who know that God has incredible plans for the future, some that are wildly unexpected by us, and they catch us by surprise, catch us off guard, it's all the more reason for us to desire the spiritual muscle memory of trusting in him. This is where we hear David and, the, and, and others in the Bible repeated, repeating this refrain, yet I will trust in you. In the midst of sin, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of prosperity, yet I will trust in you. This kind of implicit trust is then premeditated. It's something that we're preparing for. I believe the book of Revelation is given to us as a, as a preparation manual so that we can look forward through this vision of John into the things that God has planned in the future that we might be prepared. Whether that is for a day of tribulation, a period of tribulation in which I believe the Bible says that, that, that Christians will endure that we would be ready for when Christ would come again and, and he would reign for a thousand years and that we, we would be ready to trust him if we're there when, when this happens. Psalm 56, three and four, David says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God, I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. Or again, in the midst of difficulty, Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15, he says, but as for me, I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times, even these times, the unexpected times, the difficult times, the hard, the confusing, the caught off guard times, my times, he says, are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. So as we look forward to this, this surprising moment when God will release Satan from his abyss to go into the four corners of the earth to rally an incredible army that is, that is greater than the sands of the seashore, we want to be ready for moments like that. And even the little moments of trust that we need every day, we can do that by developing our trust muscles. That's an intentional effort, isn't it? That's, that's a fight for all of us because there's something within us, remaining sin, that continues to, to pull us away from trust, to continue to, to, to give us something else to look to for hope. But rather, we want to return again and again with David to say, yet I will trust you. So the first use of this text or application for all of us to be considering in the coming week is how will you develop your trust muscles? Let me encourage you in, in a general way that works out in specific ways in daily life to focus on two things, saying to God and showing God I trust you. Just like you've read about in, in the Psalms that I've just read, those few verses and many others. Perhaps this week in your Bible reading, you could carve out some time to go look for passages about trusting God so that you have them on hand. They are in your tool belt, in your arsenal, ready to be fired at moment's notice, even implicitly trusting God, ready to act by saying to him and showing him I trust you. 
I want you to be thinking about that as we move forward. Think about this week. You may know of some challenges coming up. You may know of some moments in this week that you're particularly not looking forward to or you see that something could, could go awry or perhaps even there's something that is unexpected. Be thinking now, I trust you. Be saying now, God, I trust you. Be showing now by the disposition of your heart, by the decisions that we make, I trust you. This is helpful and important because next we see in this text a beloved defense of his people. As this army mounts for a battle and assault, a great, incredible conflict against the Lord and his people in his sovereign thousand-year reign at the end, looking forward to this, we are reminded of what it's like to have God as our only defense. It comes clear through the words of verse 9 as we read them. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, John says, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. First, I want you to notice what the scene shows. This army is an army of deceived people more than the sands of the seashore. They have been deceived by the devil. They are enraged. They are whipped into a frenzy. They are an enormous crowd ready for battle, the battle of their lives. But notice John also describes this in his vision as them coming on a a broad open plain. Now that's not a good situation to be in if there's a war. You do not want to be in a broad open plain with no defenses, no walls, no ramparts, no elevation to look down upon your enemy. So here is Christ and his people in the broad open plain Another part of this picture is that it's as though all around them, they're being surrounded. You might think about what it's like, maybe you've been to the beach and gotten in a raft and gone way out in the water, so far that you are so surrounded by water that it's almost as if you can't see anything else. Some of us who are brave enough have gone so far that the distant shoreline is almost invisible. It's that kind of feeling. It's that kind of picture. This is a Is a climactic moment. But notice this. There is an anticlimactic assault. And it is all because God has every intention and every sovereign ability, every bit of knowledge that he needs, all control and power, all grace and mercy for his people, all commitment to his purposes, that he defends his beloved in a moment. Here are the enemies deceived into this confidence that is bolstered by the appearance of vulnerability on the broad plain. They can surround the beloved city and Christ and his people. They are swelling with confidence. But also we can be deceived in moments like that, can't we? If you read into this, I can imagine myself being concerned and deceived by the appearance of my vulnerability. Here I am surrounded as out on a raft in the ocean. But God is not deceived. God is not vulnerable. He has called for the war. He has released Satan for the very purpose of bringing those who remain his enemies and refuse his grace. He is not afraid. And in an anticlimactic moment of assault, you imagine that this is going to unfold into a great extended battle for days or weeks or months. But no, in one moment, fire from heaven 
And all of those who had gathered on the broad open plain around the beloved city, Christ and his people at the end of his thousand year reign, fire falls everywhere around and devours them, John says. This is a striking and alarming picture for any of us who know the Lord. It is a striking and alarming picture for any of us who do not. What does it mean for his people, though? What is this picture, and what is the meaning for those who are, who are there with him? Those who are, who are a part of his reign, we are in situations like this. It means that there's a reminder of our waiting. You see, this falling of fire from heaven is a little like um, the military scenes that you have seen play out in movies, or perhaps those who have served may have seen them in real life. When it seems as though a platoon or group are pinned down and they need help, they, they call for the airstrike. But you know, in all of those scenes and all of those plots, it takes some time. There's waiting. I imagine that at this moment, there is a waiting of God's people. Here, this incredible army is surrounding them, and there is a brief waiting. And what they're waiting for is for fire to fall. Now, this makes perfect sense to us. It should. Because if you think about it, The entire Christian life is waiting for fire to fall. Have you been praying for people who are unbelievers and you want to see them come to faith in Christ? Have you been praying for loved ones or those uh, among the nations of the world that we know God has plans, though, though unknown to us exactly, to save those people and to bring them to faith in Christ? Do you have neighbors that you've been praying for and you've been sharing the gospel with? I hope so. But in the meantime, what are you doing? You are waiting for fire to fall from heaven. Because that's the way the conversion happens, isn't it? Even from the very beginning of the Christian life, it begins with fire falling. If you're here today and you have have faith in Christ, you belong to him. You belong to him because heavenly fire fell. God in his sovereign grace threw down his spiritual fire into your heart to awaken you to the glories of Christ. He came down in power and he worked in your heart in a way that no one else could, not even you. Conversion comes from heaven's fire falling. Or even as a Christian, as you you go throughout your day and you have all of these concerns like I do and you hopefully you're making them a matter of prayer. And this new year, what a wonderful priority to maintain. I want to be a person of prayer. We want to be a church of prayer. We have concerns uh, about the world. We have uh, things that we want to see accomplished. We have hopes and dreams. We pray about them. We ask God, and then what do we do? We wait. We wait for fire to fall, because none of these things in the world can be done by our puny hands. We don't have any word of faith that we could speak into existence something that needs to happen or be done or accomplished. What are we doing? We're praying for God to work. We're praying for him to move. We are praying for a kind of fire to fall. And then as we see here at the very end, the final defense and victory of God's people comes when heaven's fire is falling. Therefore, we are learning here to implicitly trust God and in the trusting, learning to wait. 
and to know what we're waiting on. We're waiting on the God of the universe who is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases to act according to our prayers, according to our needs, according to his purposes. We're waiting. That's such a hard thing for us to learn. It's such a hard thing for me to do because I want what I want when I want it and when I want it is now. But God says, wait. God says, wait, because it's in the waiting that he's most glorified. That's when I am most satisfied in him and he is most glorified in me when I am waiting, trusting him, waiting for him to work. Listen to these words again. It's always good to let them wash over you. You may even sit there and as you hear uh, passages of scripture read like this one, a, a brief paragraph, you might even close your eyes just to focus your heart and just to imagine and take in those words and let them wash over your heart and mind when you hear the psalmist say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring out your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait. Wait patiently for him. Do not get upset because one of one who is successful in his way because of the person who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and abandon wrath. Do not get upset. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be eliminated. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. What an incredible picture of the Old Testament in the Psalms. It sure does look, about, look like a future reality that is coming in the book of Revelation. Yet a little while and the wicked person will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The second application of our text to our lives today is really that. It is to learn to wait for fire from heaven. How do we do that? We do that by submitting our lives to God's ultimate loving control. This is the continual refrain. You know, we've said it lots of times. The Christian life is repetitive. It is the old news over and over and over again. The old truth, the old helps. But they must come over us again and again and again, must they? So we want to be the kind of people who learn to wait and know what you're waiting for. You're not waiting for something small. You're not waiting for something that simply happens away in a corner. You are waiting for something big. You are waiting for something that is at the very heart of God, and that is the display of his own glory in the way that he answers you. We are waiting for something extraordinary, and we're waiting for fire to fall. That will happen in this, in this scene in the future when the great assault comes, fire will fall, and in a moment... Those who have opposed Christ, they have refused his grace time and time and time again. The age of grace will end. They will be devoured. But that's not the end. Because you know that there is one more who must be dealt with. And this is where things take the ultimate climactic turn. It wasn't in the great army that was surrounding the, the blessed city and Christ and his people at the end of his thousand year reign. But rather... It is that God will yet lop off the head of evil 
Because we'll see finally, in addition to the sovereign release, in addition to the beloved defense, we see in this text, this is unexpected. This is a little hard for us to get our hearts and minds around. We see a devilish torment. Notice what it says in verse 10. John says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we catch in the context that the beast and the prophet are already in the lake, but in ultimate climactic style, the devil himself is cast headlong into this lake of fire and brimstone. You remember this from Matthew 25, Jesus speaking on the coming judgment. He says, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This moment is not simply a response to what's happening in the moment. This hurling of the devil into the lake of fire and brimstone is an eternal plan fulfilled in the end right on time. God has been planning for this ultimate defeat from the very beginning. It's one of the reasons why we as his people know that we can wait trusting him in the moments when we feel the continual surge of temptation from our enemy. When we look around the world and we see all different kinds of works of the devil very clearly working out in the world and we wonder what in the world is going on. Why, God, would you allow evil in your world? Why, God, would you allow these things to continue happening? Because he has an ultimate plan for the demise of the devil, evil, and his works. His condemnation will be no ordinary condemnation. His condemnation will be torment. This is where we get one of those glimpses of our Lord that we're not used to. It can be a little off-putting, can go a little against the grain of what we anticipate because we have received so much grace and mercy, so much patience and long-suffering for us in our struggles and sins and temptations and all the rest, our our slowness to, to trust Him, our weakness of our faith. But notice this, catch a glimpse of God's character and His hatred for this devil and for sin and what He plans to do. The devil's condemnation will be a devilish, because he is the devil, torment, because God will torment him. This word that's used in the text, it means to vex someone with grievous pains. It means to be constantly harassed and distressed. It's the kind of word that is also used uh, at this time and in the Bible of those at sea who are struggling with a headwind where they're trying to make progress and they're constantly met and constantly battered. It's a kind of wind torture. But here there will be torture and torment like no other. Now this is not something that we're unfamiliar with because human beings in our sinfulness are wonderfully adept at torture. It is something that we have excelled in as, uh, as, as people throughout history. The examples of the way that those Some have tormented their enemies as astounding, gruesome, graphic. You can do a simple search of the different forms of torture that have been used and you'll find an almost unending list. 
You'll see torture of the dripping machine in which water is continually dripped on the top of someone's head over and over again to drive them insane. You'll find torture of the torture chair, the iron chair, which is covered in spikes and, and the, the victim is strapped to it, always uncomfortable, feeling the pokes and pinches, no way to relieve any of the pain or the discomfort. You'll find examples of something like the rack in which the, the victim is, is tied down and the, the table is pulled apart to pull the joints out of joint. Or the brazen bull, a giant iron bull with a door in the side and, and someone's enemy would be stuffed inside and a fire lit underneath so that the bronze bull would, would heat up, essentially boiling this person inside the bull. Constant dunking over and over again. Rat torture in which someone would make an incision and place a rat on the incision and cover it with a bowl so that, and then heat the bowl up so that the rat will panic and begin chewing into the intestines of the person. Torture is nothing new to human beings. But I can tell you this. It is nothing compared to the torment that the devil himself and his beast and the prophet will feel for all eternity. Because this is what God thinks of sin. So before we leave this text, let's capture once again for our own good God's hatred of sin. Notice what this torment will be like. It will be divine. It's not human torment. This is divine torment. All of God's resources, all of his excellencies will be put to use in this place, this lake of fire and brimstone. Yes, God is omnipresent. He is the one tormenting. But the torment will be, as John says, day and night, day and night, day and night, over and over again and forever and ever. This is what God thinks of sin. This is what God thinks of the devil, our enemy. And this is what he will do to defend us. And this ought to be to us who love Christ a holy motivation to avoid and kill sin at all costs. Not because we are afraid of hell and torment, but because we know that Christ came to spare us from it. That's the motivation. It's not that we ought to avoid sin and kill it because we're afraid of what God will do to us. It's that we avoid sin and kill it because we know what Christ has done for us. How would we dishonor him in this way? It ought to motivate and spur and fuel and heat up our desire for repentance, our desire for purity, our desire for gladness in him because of what he has done for us. We will not know the lake of fire and brimstone. We will not know the depths of his wrath. We will know his grace forevermore. I would recommend to you a book that could help you in this. It certainly helps me, and it's one of those books that we would do well to read over and over again. It's a book with a fancy title called The Mortification of Sin by a guy named John Owen. The word mortification means to put to death. So this book is about putting death to sin for these very reasons, because we love Christ and he loves us, because we're satisfied in Christ and he's glorified in us. And in that book, John Owen gives us the warning 
It's a warning about a battle. It's a warning about the Christian life. It's a warning about sin. It's a warning about joy. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And this is our motivation. We have a heavenly motivation. We have a divine motivation because we have a God who is himself a sin killer, a devil tormentor to whom we belong and we are grateful to belong to him by grace. So finally, our last application here is just that. Be killing sin. I know that all of us have so many things going on in life. There are so many good ventures that we're involved in. There are so many difficulties and anxieties and worries and troubles that sometimes we lose sight of the ongoing battle against sin. We lose sight of our very real enemy who one day will face this demise. But nevertheless, in the present moment, the Christian life is war. Therefore, we need this reminder to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. But ultimately, to be killing sin because our God is a sin killer. You could also add that to your Bible reading. You could keep an eye out as you read verse by verse, book by book through the Bible this year that you would, that you would be on the lookout for God's sin-killing passion, for his soul-satisfying joy that comes by dealing with our sin. And that you would do that looking forward with me to what we'll see in just shortly from now in the next few weeks of the ultimate, beautiful, wonderful end that is so very different than the end of the devil. And it's the end that he will bring to us. We'll close our time this morning by just looking forward for a moment at Revelation 21 to get a glimpse in the midst of this doom of the ultimate rejoicing that is coming as ongoing compounded motivation for us to love and serve and belong to Christ with joy. Listen to what he says. The nations at this time will walk by its light And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Every week, every day, Every moment, it's our desire to plead with any people who are here or on our live stream that if you don't know Christ, you should come. You should come and belong to him. You should cry out to him and wait on him to give you everything that you need so that you could be converted, that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would pass from darkness into light, which is where the Bible clearly says you are if you do not know him. But in this time, in this age of grace, he is welcoming people of all backgrounds, all races, all languages, all tribes, all around the world to come to him. And so we encourage you to come to him by faith, repenting of your sin, place your trust in him, cry out to him, wait for him and follow him all the days of your life. And we want to do that with you. And so if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, let us know. Let's talk about this. Or if you're making a decision To become a Christian, let us know so that we can walk with you and we can pray with you because we all need one another in this Christian life 
as we look forward to the wonderful plans to defend us that Christ has for us in the defeat of the devil and his evil ways. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks because we look forward in your book to the times that are coming. We look forward to your faithful defense of your people and your perfect, wonderful reign for all eternity. We are reminded again and again from your word that we know you by grace alone. There's nothing that we have done to merit or deserve your favor, but only by grace you have brought us to yourself. We pray for people in the world everywhere like us who who are unbelieving as we once were, that they would come to faith now soon and to begin enjoying the fruits and the, the benefits of knowing you, to be satisfied in you, to enjoy your glory. We also pray that you would build in us an implicit trust of you. Any distrust of you is unwarranted because you've proven your love. You've proven your power time and again. And so we pray that you would help us Help us to trust you this week. Help us to look to you. Help us to kill sin because you love us and because we love you. We pray that you would continue to work in us a a good gospel work of good news to make us good news people so that we can tell the world, so that we can rejoice together about the good news of Christ who came to save sinners like us and to keep us in your kingdom forever and in the joy of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) 